Well, as we come to our time of worship in the Word of God, this morning we are back in the Gospel of Matthew, and there are two things that I want us to look together at this morning from Matthew chapter 26, and that has to do with the preparation of Christ for the cross. In fact, this study will include this week, next week, and perhaps the week after as we look at those biblical truths related to preparing Messiah for the cross. Some of those preparations go to eternity past, and some are immediate, just hours before the cross. But we want to look together at the preparation of Jesus for the cross, and also the preparation of his disciples for the trials that were about to befall them as Jesus was betrayed and sent to the cross. And And so we want to learn wonderful things about our Lord this morning and also learn how we are to also face trials the way Christ did in the power and the truth and the strength with which he faced them. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, as we return to this marvelous gospel of Matthew, as we are just literally hours before Jesus' arrest, and his mock trials, and his crucifixion, wherein we see not only the agony physically of the cross, but we see even more the agony of bearing sin and bearing your wrath, O Father, the one with whom the Son had enjoyed perfect fellowship for eternity. And now so difficult is the trial before Jesus that he says in this text that his soul is in agony. Let us learn this morning and the next week and the week after that, as you may will, wondrous truths about Jesus and his resolution to go to the cross, his understanding as to why he had come into the world, And how indeed Jesus' death for sin is the only way of salvation. That there is no other way. For as Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And so our study in these weeks, may we see the exclusivity of the gospel the uniqueness of this means of salvation and how Jesus is the only Savior who could accomplish that work. And yet, as he faced these trials, he faced them by means of the same strength that you would have us to use. He faced them by singing and by prayer, by intimate fellowship, first with his disciples and then alone with you. May we rejoice in the resolution of our Savior to lay his life down for us. And may we learn in his strength, his resolution, that we as well, through song and prayer and fellowship and times with you, learn to face every trial. But our main focus is the cross. 
For from all eternity you have planned that Messiah would lay down his life to save his people from their sins. And so this morning I pray as we see through Scripture both the historical preparation for the future work of Messiah on the cross from the Old Testament and from prophecies in the earlier part of Jesus' ministry, we will realize that you have from, from all eternity been preparing for that day of the cross. But then also we will see in our text specific immediate preparations in the hours before the cross. Gracious means of spiritual strength and encouragement which our Lord made use of, which he urged upon his disciples, and which we also should imitate as we face the trials of our lives. We do pray that you would teach us from this passage. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, last week we completed an extended exploration of what the Bible has to say about genuine, God-given, spirit-empowered, others-centered, self-sacrificial love. But this morning we are returning to our study through the Gospel of Matthew. And we return to the Gospel of Matthew precisely at the point where Jesus is preparing himself and his disciples for what is about to unfold. And what is about to unfold are those final events which will take Jesus to the cross. You may remember from a number of months ago, back in October, we had two sermons looking at Jesus in the upper room and his inauguration of the Lord's Supper. Now we have arrived to that time where they are going to leave the upper room and go to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus will spend time with some teaching with his disciples, but most of all, he will encourage them to pray, and he himself will pray repeatedly. So really, we arrive now at the ultimate reason for why he came into this world. We have now arrived at those last few hours, which will culminate in him laying down his life for the sins of his people. Our main passage for this morning and next week is Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 30 and all the way down to verse 58. Matthew 26, verses 30 to 58. This is why Jesus had come into this world, to seek and to save that which was lost. And speaking of love, what was about to unfold is literally the greatest act of love in all of creation history, for Jesus was about to undertake and accomplish those works necessary to save his people from their sins. Yes, his entire life was essential in fulfilling all righteousness that he might credit to us his righteousness. But at the cross, he would take upon himself all of the sins of all who would ever believe and pay that sin debt in full. And now we are just moments before that betrayal and crucifixion. In order to get there, Jesus would experience sorrow and sacrifice, agony and eventually death on the cross. As we arrive back again in Matthew 26 and verse 30, we are at Passover week. Millions have swarmed into Jerusalem to offer sacrificial lambs. And here is the Lamb of God come to lay down his life for the sins of the world. 
Jesus, again, has just inaugurated and celebrated the Lord's Supper in an upper room there in Jerusalem. He has announced to his disciples that one of them is about to betray him. Satan has now so tempted Judas that he has resolved to betray Christ. And then John chapter 13 to chapter 17 actually records for us First of all, Jesus' washing of his disciples' feet, then followed by an extensive teaching is what is, in what is sometimes called the, the upper room discourse, a teaching that lasted through to his high priestly prayer in John 17. All this takes place in the upper room, the washing of the disciples' feet, the upper room discourse, his high priestly prayer, his inauguration, of the Lord's Supper, his announcement that one would betray him. And so what I want us to do now is for us to really read through the events that will take us from the upper room, literally out the eastern gate of Jerusalem, across the Kidron Valley, and into the Garden of Gethsemane, located near the foot of the Mount of Olives. And to do this, I have placed in your notes an ordered harmony of these events as recorded in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Yes, you can turn and follow along with this in your Bibles in Matthew chapter 30, verses 30 to 58, but you may want to look at the color-coded harmony that is there in your notes, for Matthew's account is in blue, Mark's account of these events is in green, Luke's account is in red, and John's account is in purple. For Matthew, it's Matthew 26, 30 to 58. For Mark, it's Mark 14, 32 to 52. Luke, it's chapter 32, verses 39 to 54. And John is chapter 18, verses 1 to 12. Now, I've done this before with other passages, and one of the beauties of doing a harmony of the accounts of the gospel is that we find that every element aligns perfectly with the elements from all of the other Gospels. There is never contradiction. Every statement that is the same aligns perfectly, and the, the added elements all harmonize together to give us a, a coherent whole. And so the portion I'm about to read is actually a larger section. You'll see that in your notes. It's pretty extensive, but I want us to start off our study of the preparation for the cross by really taking in the fullness of these events to see the entire context so that this morning and Lord willing the next week or two we will see where this is all headed to. We can see every component element. And so if you'll notice there in John 18:1 in purple, we start off with this statement when Jesus had spoken these words, and that is in reference to his upper rim discourse and in reference to his inauguration of the Lord's Supper and the words that he spoke there, and also in reference to the high priestly prayer in John 17. And so, right at the start of John 18's account of Jesus heading to Gethsemane, he concludes the upper room with this phrase When Jesus had spoken these words, we're not going to touch on that this morning. But one of the things that I want to talk to you about in the next couple of weeks is that a key part of our spiritual preparation to face trials is to be in the Word of God, to be refreshed and invigorated in the Scriptures, and a key part of preparing His disciples for what would befall them in the days and weeks 
and years ahead was the preparation of that upper rim discourse and the things that he would say to them right before he was betrayed. So when Jesus had spoken all these words and then this key statement that we're going to look at this morning, Matthew 26, 30, after singing a hymn that's often overlooked. And I want to talk this morning about how being a person who is engaged in daily worship of the true and living God is a key part of preparing our hearts, minds, and souls for all of life, including all of life's trials. I do not want us to miss the fact that one of the final things that Jesus did before he went to the cross was to sing a hymn with his disciples. We'll look at that later on in our study. And then we continue reading through our text in John 18. It says that he went forth with his disciples. They went over the ravine of the Kidron. The Kidron Valley is that valley that lies just to the east of the city of Jerusalem. So they went over that ravine out to the Mount of Olives where there was a garden. That's the Garden of Gethsemane. It's right there at the foothills of the Mount of Olives, which are to the east of the city of Jerusalem. And Matthew, uh, Mark actually tells us, it should say Mark, uh, Mark tells us that this was Jesus' custom, that he often went out to the garden with his disciples to spend time with them. So again, put in your notes, Mark twenty-two thirty-eight. It was common for them to go out there, and this is important because this is how Judas is going to find them, because Judas is used to Jesus going out to the Garden of Gethsemane. Verse 31, Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, as it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. All the disciples said the same thing too. Then Jesus came with them to the place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be grieved and distressed. And then he said to him, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little bit beyond them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and he fell on his face and prayed. My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him, and being in agony, he was praying fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood. When he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow, and said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met with, there with his disciples. 
Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a large crowd and swords with clubs who came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him. Immediately Judas went up to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and he kissed him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have come for. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you speak? Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said to Jesus of Nazareth, They said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that was spoken. Of those whom he gave me, or whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then they came and laid their hands on Jesus and seized him. And those who were around him saw what was going to happen. They said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Behold, one of those who were with Jesus, Simon Peter, then having a sword, reached out and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. Then Jesus said to him, Stop, no more of this. Put your sword back in its place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father? And he will at once put put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels. How then will the scriptures be fulfilled, which say that it must happen this way? At that time, Jesus said to the crowds, to the chief priests and the officers and the, of the temple and the elders who had come against him, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching you, and you did not seize me. But this hour and the power of darkness are yours. But all this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures of the prophets. Then all the disciples left him and fled. A young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body, and they seized him. But he pulled free of the linen and escaped naked. So the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him, and those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. But Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. After that, I need a drink. Now, what I want us to see, first of all, as we walk through these verses, both this morning and next week, is first of all that Jesus is going to prepare his disciples for the trials and temptations that are about to befall them. Now, they fail at first, but eventually, as they remember in the future, this will strengthen them and encourage them. 
Second, in addition to strengthening his disciples for the trials that were about to befall them, Jesus himself prepares himself for the cross that lay before him. And as we look at this, we will encounter together a number of key theological truths regarding Jesus and his work and his redemptive mission to save his people from their sins. And then third, we will gain great insight into how we ourselves are to face our greatest trials and tribulations by using the same means that Jesus uses here in our main passage. But there's one thing I want to do this morning before we dive directly into this text, is that I want us to see that not only is Jesus preparing his disciples and himself hours before the cross, but that really, in reality, from all eternity, God has been preparing for this day. It is his eternal design and purpose that Messiah would give his life for his people. And so, in order to see how Jesus prepares his disciples and himself for the cross and himself for the cross, I want us to first of all see that God has always been preparing for this from all eternity. In fact, to see this, I would invite you now to turn to Acts chapter 2 and verses 22 to 23. In the next several minutes, we're going to walk through the scriptures. We're going to see that the the preparation of Messiah to go to the cross, to pay sin's debt for his people, has always been God's design. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 and 23. What is happening here is that the disciples had gathered again in the upper room after the cross, After the resurrection, after 40 days of appearing to many witnesses, they are back in the upper room on that day of Pentecost where the Holy Spirit is poured out with great power. And the disciples are proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ throughout uh, that upper room and out the windows of the upper room in many languages of those who had gathered there in Jerusalem for the feasts. For Jews all throughout the Mediterranean and believing Gentiles would descend upon Jerusalem, swelling the size of Jerusalem from about one million population to two million during the time of the feasts and the festivals. And so there are all manner of people gathered from throughout the Mediterranean and they they begin to hear the testimony of Jesus Christ by and in their own languages as they speak in languages after the Holy Spirit is poured out upon them. And as the crowd draws near, Peter himself alone begins to preach. He gives word and testimony of Christ. And he says this, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, now listen to this, next statement, regarding the fact that the cross of Messiah was always God's design from all eternity. Peter says this about Jesus, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men. Yes, these godless men were directly responsible for their murder of the Lord Jesus Christ. However, Jesus' death for sin was by 
the predetermined plan of God. The cross was no afterthought. The crucifixion was no plan B. It had always been God's only plan. And having seen now from the lips of Peter that this is God's eternal plan, I want us to trace the preparation for the death of Messiah all the way back to the Old Testament. And so would you turn with me to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. Here again we see the earliest mention and hint that looks forward to the death of Messiah. Here in this text, in Genesis 3.15, Adam and Eve had just fallen into sin. The Lord had come in bodily form, walking to them in the cool of the day. Here the Lord not only confronts them about sin, he also gives several curses. Notice what it says in verse 15 as the Lord speaks to Satan. He says to Satan, who had literally taken upon himself the the body of a serpent. He says to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And that woman that's being referred to is not Eve, that's Mary, the mother of Jesus. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed, that is those who follow Satan, and her seed, and that is Jesus. Now, as you study the scriptures, you realize very quickly that uh, there is almost never any reference to the seed of the woman. It is always the seed of the man. Why uniquely the seed of the woman? Well, it's because Jesus would be born of the Virgin Mary. He had no earthly father. And so to her seed, namely Jesus, he shall bruise you on the head. And that word for bruise here in the Hebrew is to crush. It could mean to pulverize your head. In other words, this son of the woman, Jesus, Messiah, will crush your head and you shall bruise him on the heel. That's in reference to the cross. This is the earliest reference that we have that is beginning to hint at the death of Messiah who will defeat the works of Satan. This is the first reference, reference sometimes called the Proto-Euangelion, P-R-O-T-O, first, Euangelion, E-U-G-E-L-I-O-N. That is the good news, the first reference to the good news of the gospel given in the garden before Adam and Eve and even announcing the defeat of Satan, that Messiah will crush the head of Satan. He will defeat utterly Satan and his work. There's another early reference to the death of Messiah. Look forward a few verses to verse 21 of Genesis 3. You remember what happened when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What did they realize almost instantly? That they were what? naked and they made fig leaves to cover their nakedness and they hid from the Lord. And so they are naked and it shows them they're aware of this, their own fallenness and their own shame. And so what God then does, does is he takes an animal and he literally kills an animal and takes the skin of that animal to cover the shame and nakedness of Adam and Eve. And this then is a picture of Jesus dying for the sins of his people, wherein his own righteousness will cover their sin and their shame, that they might receive the righteousness of Christ and stand justified before God. 
So again, already just in chapter 3 of Genesis, we've seen two early hints of the death of Messiah as God is preparing the way from all eternity, Peter says in Acts 2, for the death of Messiah for sin. Another illustration of God's plan, preparing the way for Messiah's death for sin, is also seen in the imagery that is contained in those events that are connected to Abraham's willingness to offer his only son Isaac upon the altar to the Lord. You remember when the Lord had called upon Isaac to offer his son, his his only son, and therein we find again an early picture of Messiah's death. Turn forward to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. We see this early illustration again, and starting in verse 12. Abraham has bound the hands of his son. He has laid him upon the altar. He has the knife raised in the air, the the blade gleaming in the, the sky, right before he strikes his son. God says to Abraham, do not stretch out your hand against the lad. Do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withhold, withheld. Now, now listen to this language. Listen to the familiarity of this language in relationship to the son. Since you have not withheld your son, your only son before me. And then Abraham raised his eyes and looked and Behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by its thorn, by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up as a burnt offering in the place of his son. You notice the substitution. The ram in place of the son. And Abraham called the name of that place Yahweh will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of Yahweh it will be provided. And indeed, God has provided the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Then the angel of Yahweh called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, Behold, I have sworn, declares Yahweh, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. And then listen to this statement, verse 18. In your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. So in this event, we have a foreshadowing of God sending his son, the Lamb of God, to take away the sins of the world, his son, his only beloved son. And in the seed of Christ is salvation. And to the seed of Abraham is granted salvation and blessing for all those who share Abraham's faith. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. This is a promise that all who share Abraham's faith from every nation on the earth will be saved by the atoning death of God's only son, the son whom he provided to save us from our sins. And we know that this is the meaning of this text because the Holy Spirit quotes this verse in Galatians 3, 8, where Paul explains that the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. 
So we have in this event where Abraham is about to sacrifice his son Isaac and God stays his hand and provides the ram in the place of the son, a picture of the father sending the lamb in the place of his people and dying for his people that through Christ, all who share Abraham's faith will be eternally blessed with salvation. And Galatians says they will receive the inheritance of Abraham. Now, while there are many other Old Testament passages we could look at that show that all of redemptive history is being prepared for the arrival of Messiah and his death for sin, there's one other section I want us to look at that foreshadows and speaks prophetically of the death of Messiah, and that is Isaiah chapter 53, Isaiah chapter 53, verses 3 to 12. And again, this is showing us that not only is Jesus going to prepare himself and his disciples hours before the cross, but the preparation for the death of Messiah is from all eternity and throughout history, throughout the Old Testament. This is prophesied again and again. Messiah is going to die for the sins of his people. Listen there, starting in verse 3 of Isaiah 53, it says of Messiah that he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hid their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But Yahweh has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken out of the way. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgressions of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men. And yet he was with a rich man in his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But Yahweh was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. And then here is a reference to the resurrection. He will see his offspring. He, the Father, will continue his days, and the good pleasure of Yahweh will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see and be satisfied. But by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he bears and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot to him a portion with the great and will divide the booty with the strong because he poured himself out to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Do you understand why many refer to Isaiah 53 as the gospel in the Old Testament? Do you know that a lot of times missionaries, when they go to the nation of Israel in order to preach Christ and Christians who live there in Israel will often go up to a Jew and will hand him a copy of Isaiah 53. And he'll ask them, 
Do you recognize this as scripture? They'll say yes. Have you ever read this chapter? They will say no, and here's why. Synagogues all over the world believe that Isaiah 53 is scripture, but they will never, ever, ever read this chapter in the synagogue. Did you know that? They skip this chapter. And what happens when the typical person reads this chapter and you ask them, does this remind you of anyone you know of in history? Do you know what the answer is? They say, typically, that sounds like Jesus. So, from eternity past, as we saw in Acts 2, throughout Scripture in the Old Testament, we see over and over again this promised preparation of this substitutionary work of Messiah, of Jesus' sacrificial death for the sins of others. Now I want us to go to the New Testament. I want us to go to the gospel that we are in currently, the gospel of Matthew. And I, I want us to see that even before those final hours before the cross, throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, Jesus had been announcing that he would die and be raised again on the third day to his disciples. We know early on that as an angel appeared to Mary, he said to Mary that you will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. But how did he save them from their sins? By his death and resurrection. And so, in his ministry, Jesus said, for example, in Matthew 16, 21, this is right after he fed many thousands of people. He says from that time, it says from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. So, so Jesus announces his death and his resurrection. Later on, following the Mount of Transfiguration in the next chapter of Matthew, in Matthew 17, verses 22 to 23, again, we see Jesus preparing his disciples for the coming Messiah's death and preparing also as we will see himself. It says there, as they were gathered together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. And they were were deeply grieved. That's Matthew 17, 22, and 23. And then as Jesus headed up to Jerusalem for the Passover, with his disciples, we read again Matthew 20, verses 17 to 19. As Jesus was about to go to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside by themselves, and on the way he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and he will hand him over to the Gentiles, and scourge and crucify him, and on the third day he will be raised up. So literally from all eternity, from the early chapters of Genesis, throughout the Old Testament, Throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, the scriptures have been prophesying and preparing the way for Jesus' death for sin. And of course, last time we were in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus had inaugurated the Lord's Supper. And in the Lord's Supper, he also announces these elements that point to his own death. You remember that. Look at Matthew 26, verses 26 to 28. Death is clearly pictured in this Lord's Supper. He says there, Take, eat, this is my body. That's the bread. 
And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. Jesus again and again preparing the disciples for what was to come. And he knew his mission. He knew why he had come into the world, for he had come to seek and to save that which was lost. So there is all of that eternal and historical and prophetic preparation. But as we arrive in our text for this morning and the next week or two, the hours had finally arrived. We were in the evening now before the cross. And so in these final hours, we find this intense spiritual preparation for both Jesus and his disciples as the hours are are ticking by, awaiting the time of Jesus' betrayal and arrest. And so in the remaining time this morning and on into next week and perhaps the week after, I want us to look at the component elements, the spiritual elements of preparation that Jesus urges upon his disciples that he himself practices and uses and utilizes as he is about to go to the cross. What are those things that Christ made use of that we are to make use of as we face our own trials as well and ultimately as Jesus faced his supreme trial, the trial unlike every other trial, the trial above every other trial. And I want us to see something that I've not often heard emphasized in our final time together this morning. I want us to look at what I want to call the preparation of praise. Sometimes this is missed as we come to the Garden of Gethsemane because John tells us one final thing before they they head out, that he finishes teaching. And then Matthew says in verse 30, look at this at the beginning of verse 30 of Matthew 26. Look at this phrase, after singing a hymn. Now, would you stop there for a moment? I don't want to rush over this. I think that it's very tempting to just read that phrase at the beginning of verse 30 and just say, okay, they sang a hymn, and then they went to the garden. But let's not press through this too quickly. For right after Jesus teaches and right after he prays his high priestly prayer, right as he's about to head out with his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane for further prayer, Jesus sings a hymn with his disciples. Do you think he was just going through the motions? You know, a lot of people, when they come to church, they'll they'll sing the hymn. They know the hymn. They're familiar with the hymn. They can go through the motions and they just rattle off the hymn without real worship and real praise. Do you think that this is what Jesus is doing with his disciples? He's just mindlessly singing a hymn before he goes to the garden and before he's betrayed? No, he sings a hymn with his disciples. And I want us to see how praise is not only befitting, Christ and the believer, and that God the Father is not only worthy of all praise, but that praise prepares us and strengthens us for trials and in the midst of trials. How glorious then for Jesus to sing to the Father right before his most agonizing time and to invite his disciples to join him in singing right before the greatest trial ever experienced in any human being in all of history. Even God, the incarnate Son, sings a hymn to the Father. 
He is not angry. He is not defiant. He is not so distracted by what is about to befall him that he will not sing. In fact, singing is key to what is about to befall him. He is preparing his heart and the heart of his disciples for what is about to unfold. He isn't silent. He is singing to his heavenly Father. He knows full well what is coming. He is resolute, as we will see in the next week, that he is resolute to obey his Father. He's willing to die an agonizing death, willing to bear the full weight of sin, willing to take the holy wrath of his Father on our behalf. But in his love for his Father and his Father's will, we find Jesus in the midst of praise. I want you to think about your own life as you face trials and difficulties. Are you able to sing? Do you sing for joy toward God and His holy will? And you see that time of praise as one of God's means for strengthening you and your resolve to face those trials in His joy and in His peace. And so the Lord, right before His sufferings, lifts His heart to His Father in song. This is the blessedness and the strengthening of true worship. Even in the face of trial, love and adoration and trust for the Father cannot help but sing the worthy praise that is due His holy name. Sadly, I believe that often the daily neglect of praise in our own lives and the external showmanship of singing by rote in church worship has not prepared many people to truly praise the Lord in the midst of trial and difficulty. Praise, dear beloved, finds comfort in who God is and in what He wills. Praise expresses faith and trust in God and in His holy will in the midst of trial. Praise proclaims joy in God even in the most difficult of times knowing that God is king, that God is creator, that God is sovereign, that God is good. We praise by our delight in God. Praise delights in God. Praise acknowledges as an assured hope in what God has done, is doing, and will yet do. For praise acknowledges not only God's worthiness, but it acknowledges His wisdom and His goodness in all things and at all times, even in the midst of trial. Do you understand then why Job confesses in the midst of his profound trial? In Job 13, 15, he says this, Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. He continues in praise to God in the midst of great difficulty. You see, dear beloved, real praise is not simply going through the outward motions of singing a song like a Pharisee. That's something even an unbeliever can do. And it isn't necessarily feeling emotional 
People cry at movies all the time. They get emotional in all kinds of circumstances. This isn't the same as genuine praise. Rather, genuine, real praise arises in the mind and heart of the one who trusts in God with affection that finds true delight in God himself, in who he is, in what he wills, in what he does, in what he promises, and in what he has purposed. Praise before the cross is an affection for the Father that cannot be diminished by outward circumstances. In fact, you can't put out the flame of true worship. When the winds of trial arise, those winds only fan the flame of worship all the more. In fact, real trials mixed with real faith and real delight in God himself actually stirs up the heart toward praise because it finds singular hope in God. And the believer who has not so learned to praise the Lord in all of life's circumstances faces a trial. The temptation is often to retreat, to withdraw, to be hopeless. But for the believer, no matter what is happening, we find always in God our singular hope. We know that God will never leave us nor forsake us. Nothing is outside of the will and purpose of God for our life. All of our trials are tailor-made by God to conform us to Christ. Have you ever thought about that? Every difficult is sovereignly, difficulty is sovereignly designed by God to form Christ in you. And as far as Jesus' trials, we've just seen that from all eternity, there is a sovereign purpose in his suffering. We are able to praise God in the midst of trials because we know, do we not, dear beloved, that, that he is causing all things to work together for good? That's Romans 8.28. Do you believe that? He knows and he ordains our trials. He remains the same. He holds our eternal future secure. Nothing can separate us from His love. Our future with Him exceeds and follows every tribulation. Let me say it this way. Our eternal joy with Him will exceed and follow our every tribulation. And also knowing that our every tribulation is there to build our faith, to mature us in Christ, to deepen our love and dependency upon Him, to bring us surpassing eternal rewards. Do you realize that Jesus' perspective, fully trusting His Father, is still one in the midst of agony of absolute trust, absolute resolve, absolute comfort in His Father. This is why James says this in James 1, 2-4. This is a command, by the way. Think about this. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Okay? So do you see now, before the cross, what Jesus will be doing, as we're going to see this week and next week, is he is strengthening his disciples. Even though they will run away, they will again be strengthened. And as he faces personal agony, 
He himself is strengthened in the truth that in the trial, the Father will bring him through. And so James says, you need to know that the testing of your faith has been designed by God to produce endurance in you. And let endurance then have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What is that saying? That means that's going to grow you up and make you more like Jesus, to have joy in the midst of trial. And so we find Jesus singing before the greatest trial of his life. He's singing a hymn with his men. We must not lose sight of that. You understand, dear beloved, that he is working to accomplish great and glorious things in your life, which will bring about through your life his purposes for you unto all eternity. Certainly this is true of Christ and the purpose for which Jesus entered into the world. In fact, the scriptures tell us that when you're suffering for him, you're suffering for his glory and that it should be for you a joy to be able to suffer for him and with him. Listen to Paul, Colossians 1.24. He writes this to the Colossian believers. Now I rejoice. This is the heart of the hymn singing that we see there in Matthew. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. It does not mean there that Jesus did not suffer enough. It means that God's sovereign design is that not only Jesus the head, but that his body, the church, would also suffer throughout history for his glory, for his honor, for his name's sake. And that through that suffering, we not only give testimony to the world, we not only strengthen our brethren, we not only honor and glorify God, but we ourselves are strengthened as we have joy and we are able to sing and give testimony to the glory and hope that we have in God. One of the common uh, refrains in history is you read the accounts of many deaths of martyrs who have given their lives for Christ is that they do what when they're, they're being burned to death? They sing. They sing hymns. They sing for joy. Because it is in that moment that their faith and their resolve and their trust in God come together and they realize they have nothing in this world to hold on to but God and God alone and that He will bring them safely through the trial and that He will accomplish His work. He will complete His work in them. And so their hope is all in Him and they sing for joy. Paul and Silas, when they had been beaten and arrested and placed in the Philippian jail. It says of them in Acts 16, 23 to 25, that, that when they had struck them, that is Paul and Silas with many blows, they threw them into the prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received a command, threw them into the inner prison. So they're as far deep into the prison as they can get so that they can't escape. And he, he fastens both their hands and their feet in the stocks. It says this, but about midnight, here's Paul and, and Barnabas have been, having been beaten for preaching Christ in prison, locked up. 
It says about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God and the prisoners were listening to them. What would be the average reaction of the typical believer today when things go wrong, apparently? Right? What have I done? How can this befall me? Why are you doing this to me? Do we turn to prayer and do we turn to hymn singing? Like Paul and Silas and Jesus and the disciples. And it says that the other prisoners were listening. Do you realize what's happening as far as our our testimony to others, other believers, other non-Christians, when we face a trial and we're walking around complaining and breaking? Wow, so-and-so said this and did this, and I'm going through this, and why this? And we're just angry, and we're frustrated. This is totally the opposite of what Jesus and the disciples did. What a powerful testimony to the power of God and his trustworthiness and the gospel when in the midst of difficulty we say, God is good. God will provide. God will see me through. Yea, though I die, he will bring me into his eternal presence. What can man do to me? He is going to cause all things to work together for good for me. You know, a lot of people who profess faith in Christ find it hard to even get to the church fellowship, let alone face prison and beating and burning and crucifixion with praise, I might add. What a testimony of the goodness of God himself. How often do we consider the witness of our praise? Not so that, like the Pharisees, men would notice us and applaud us, but so that men might see that and glorify our Father who is in heaven. As Jesus said Matthew, in Matthew 5.16, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father is, who is in heaven. Let your, your faith, your love, your trust in the Lord shine forth so that your Father is glorified. And we expect the world to gripe and to complain and to get angry and to get vengeful and to vent that anger. But what we expect from a Christian is the supernatural controlling of the Spirit of God and a surpassing joy and trust in the Lord so that our reaction to trials and difficulties and tribulations and difficult people is something totally unexpected. We respond with praise and thanksgiving and witness and testify that God might be glorified in our lives. In our trials, we're to praise God, for he is our true shelter and refuge. Psalm chapter 5, verse 11 says, Let all those who take refuge in you be glad. You understand the principle of refuge. Hard times are befalling you. Enemies are attacking you. Difficulty has arrived. But, but all who trust in him take refuge in him and are glad. Let them ever sing for joy. That you might shelter them. That those who love your name may exalt in you. 
You see, an unbeliever or a false convert is not going to really understand this. I mean, they can intellectually understand it when they hear it in a sermon or they read it in the Bible. But when the trial comes, when the challenge comes, they forget all of that. They go right back to the flesh. They, they have no overarching joy in God to face that difficulty and in it all to say God is good. And again, dear beloved, it is in God himself and in our future with him, wherein we find our surpassing joy and our everlasting pleasure, which is why we praise even in trials. David wrote to God in Psalm 16, verse 11, you will make known to me the path of life. In other words, God, you will show me how to live life, and in your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. This is how we face every trial, every challenge, every difficulty, every testing. Knowing our future victory in Christ, we can say, along with David, even before the face of his enemies, Psalm 27, verse 6, And now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing. Yes, I will sing praises to Yahweh. This is what David says as the enemies are drawing in, as they're, they're coming ever closer. He doesn't say, God, why are you? Know? He, he doesn't cry out in anger. He says, rather, I will shout with joy. I will sing praises to Yahweh. Jesus' enemies were about to arrest him, beat him, mock him, crucify him. He was about to bear all of the sins of all of his elect throughout all history. I promise you, dear beloved, you will never face a trial like this. He was about to, to bear the Father's just and holy wrath, do all the sins of all his people throughout all history. And here we find Jesus right before the cross singing praise to his Father. It isn't that he enjoyed the trial. It was because he loved and trusted his father. It was because for the joy that lay beyond the sufferings that he endured the cross. So we too in our trials should fix our eyes upon Jesus and lift our hearts in sincere praise to the father that, that we might endure in his joy. I want you to hear a very important verse when it comes to endurance, starting in Hebrews 12, verse 2, and on into verse 3, it says this to us. This is how we face trials. We face them as Jesus faced them. This is why I'm connecting how Jesus faced the impending cross with how we face trials, because Hebrews 12, verses 2 to 3, tells us to make that connection. Listen to this. We are to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So what are we to do? For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and you will not lose heart. Do 
Jesus hated the shame of bearing sin. He hated the agony of receiving the wrath of the Father due our sin because he had enjoyed eternal sweet fellowship unbroken with the Father. He hated that. He despised the shame. So why did he do it? It was for the joy set before him. It was for after the cross and the resurrection that he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, having completed the work for which the Father had sent him. He endured. He had joy for what lay beyond. And this should be true for us as Christians. As we face every trial and difficulty, even when we come to the end of our final days, if we have time to see that coming, we look to Jesus. We remember how he faced trial, how he endured the cross, how he endured hostility by sinners against himself. And by looking at Jesus, the Spirit tells us through the author of Hebrews, this will enable you not to grow weary and not to lose heart. And so, what should we do when facing trials and testing? When about to face a trial, when going through a trial or testing, should we also sing praise to the Father out of genuine faith? Absolutely. This is why we are told, for example, in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, quote, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. This is why David wrote in Psalm 34, verse 1, I will bless Yahweh at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. So at all times, when you face your trials, lift your voice in praise to God. This is what Jesus did with his disciples hours before he went to the cross. This is why it is so God-honoring and spiritually beneficial to read, to memorize, to pray, to sing the Psalms to God. This is why there is every reason to commit good, theologically rich, biblically sound hymns and spiritual songs to our, our memory for singing. Dear beloved, sing songs of praise with your children, with your grandchildren. When you have your time of private worship and worship with your spouse and worship with the church, make praise and adoration of God a central part of your daily life and worship. Both set the song and just in prayer and in meditation, lift up praise to God. And when you gather with God's people, come ready to praise Him. To praise His holy name and His promises and His work. Make, as it says in Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16, make joyful melody in your heart. Sing yes to God, but also sing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Dear beloved, you realize that singing is not only to glorify God, it is to encourage yourself and one another in God. This is to be our life, a life given to praise, as we will see next week, a life given to prayer. And such a life given to genuine praise will be ready to praise him when trials come. If praise is not a part of your personal worship, 
if it is not a part of your, your time of couples worship and family worship, your daily worship, if when you come to church you're just going through the motions, when the trials come you will find it hard to locate praise in your heart. This is why we read in our text, after singing a hymn, then Jesus went to the garden with his disciples. Now there are several other means for spiritual endurance of trials that we'll look at, Lord willing, next time. But as we go forth from this place this morning, I want us to remember two things. Number one, the preparation for Messiah's death has been from all eternity. It is nothing new. It was promised all through the Old Testament. Jesus spoke of it often in the New. There are other references we didn't look at in the Gospel of John. Everything was preparing for that day. And he has accomplished that for which he was sent into the world. And second, as a takeaway, we need to remember that as we go through every day of life, we need to be a people who pray continually, that the praise of the Lord would always be on our lips. In good times and bad, so that when the time of trial arises, we will be ready, heart, mind, and soul, to lift our praise to God, whatever may come. For this is how Jesus faced his ultimate trial with his disciples. It began with a song to the Lord.